The following message is a presentation of Valley Metro Church, a community of believers dedicated to knowing God and making Him known. I just I decided to come down here on the floor to be a little closer to you guys. We can be more like family today, amen? Have a conversation, engage a little bit better, right? A little closer. I like, I like operating that way. Hopefully you do too. Feels more like family. You know, the church is a family of believers. And so uh, Jesus calls us to live as family and be family. Uh, today, today we're talking about Jesus as king. Jesus is king. Any of you familiar with the new record that's out, Jesus is king? Anybody? Jesus King. Okay, getting truckloads of downloads, affecting an entire generation. The reality is, it's, it's a truth that's being stated to a generation and a culture who hasn't heard it before, but the fact of the matter, Jesus is King. He is, in fact, uh, Lord. And we're going to talk about the kingship of Jesus. We're in Matthew today. Uh, if you guys want to get ready, it's Matthew 27. We're picking up where we, where we left off in the Gospel of Matthew. But this is profound because many, many realize that Jesus is the King. And many don't realize that he is the king. And many are becoming to realize right now just what this is all about, that Jesus is the king. It's the Lord, pretty synonymous term, that he's, he's the ultimate one. He's the ultimate authority that we come under when we make him the Lord or make him the king uh, of our life. I remember when that happened to me, I, uh, being young, I understood some things about Jesus and the, the principle of the the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, but I didn't have a Lord of my life. I did not have a king, and I lived my life without a king. I was the king of my life. Maybe some of you guys can relate. Was anybody the king of their own life? Okay, and then it comes a point where you recognize the magnitude and magnificence of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and you realize the claims he made and who he is and what he does, and you come to the point that, wow, Jesus is, in fact, the Lord, the King. The question is, will I make him my Lord and King? Will I let him be my Lord and King? Because he won't force anyone uh, to, to, be, uh, to, to serve him and to acknowledge him. And, but when you recognize who he is, there's only, there's one, it's evidence that demands the verdict. What else can I do but follow the one who is the lover of my soul, who has got a plan for my life? So Jesus is, in fact, King. In fact, the Bible says he's king of all kings, says that about seven times, king of all kings, and someday that every single knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is king. So every ruler, every president, any, every emperor, every king, every governor, every person in authority, Supreme Court justice, whoever, they, everybody who ever ruled and reigned in any capacity of oversight, one day, is going to have a day to stand before the king of all kings. It's a pretty powerful passage, and I want to set it up a little bit, because when we talk about Jesus being the king, uh, today's passage is going to describe how he's the king of the Jews, the king of Israel. We're going to see these other dimensions of his kingship. Uh, but originally in Scripture, originally in Scripture, um, God was Israel's king. They didn't have a king. God was their king. And that's how God wanted it to be. God said, listen, Israel, I love you. I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will make my dwelling among you. I'm going to live with you. I will be your king. I will lead you. I will guide you. I will provide for you. I will fight your battles. This is what will happen. And guess what? It worked out pretty well from Abraham, uh, from Adam through Abraham, through Moses. In the time of Judges, there was a recognition that God is, in fact, our king, and we don't need a king. 
But something happened in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Israel starts looking around. And they start looking around at other nations. And they look at how these other nations are operating and what these other nations are doing. And Israel is starting to covet the way of life of others. Not believers, not the people of God, but they're coveting what they're doing. And Israel says, we demand a king. We want what they have. And they go to Samuel and they say, we demand a king. We want to be like them. And, and Samuel's broken heart. It says, no, guys, don't do this. God is our king. And they said, we demand a king. So anyway, Samuel turns to God in prayer and says, Lord, what are we going to do? They're demanding a king. And God says, yep, that's, that's unfortunate. But here, Samuel, remember, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. So tell them, yes, if they want a king, they're going to have a king. But they're going to realize the consequences of earthly kings and coming under these kings and these kingdoms and all the fallout that's going to ensue. So that's what happened. But there was this temptation between letting God be your king or, or looking at others and wanting what others have. And all, all the way back in history with the people of God, there's been a tension uh, between this. Even with Moses and the people in the desert, we're following God, we're uh, Yahweh, Elohim, Adonai, we're following him, we're following his ways. And then we look at other people and we go, hey, what about some of that pagan stuff? And there's an attraction somehow to some of the things the world is doing. This happened all the way through Israel's history, walking with God and then looking and going, hey, what about them? Uh, and this is what's happening in 1 Samuel 8 where they're walking with God and they go, what about them? We want what they're having. And God's like, actually, you don't want that? And they're saying, yes, we do. And God's like, okay, if you want that, you're going to realize you, you're not going to be glad you you get that. And so the story goes on. And through Israel's history, they had some, some good kings. They had some really bad kings. In fact, there were times they came under the rulership of other nations' kings. And they realized this thing isn't working out uh, too well. But it's really important uh, to know. We're going to look at some key points today. And if you're a note taker, I just encourage you to write a few down. Uh, but the first one is this. As far as King Jesus is concerned, uh, the king is not calling us to be like everybody else. Uh, and that's where the kingship begins. If Jesus is the king in your life, one of the first things you realize is that he's calling us to not be like everybody else. That we are what the Bible refers to as the called out ones, the chosen, the elect. He calls us out of our Egypt. He calls us out of our Babylon. He calls us out of our Hollywood. He calls us out of our realm, our world, our background, our past. He calls us out of that way to walk with him. We're not supposed to be the way we used to be, and we're not supposed to uh, be uh, the way everybody else is. The crowd we're going to see today, there is power in the crowd. The crowd has a voice that pulls people like you and I away and lures people away, just like it did in Israel in 1 Samuel 8. Oh, we have this, and Israel's like, we want what they have. And God's like, actually, you don't. It's not good for you. And they're like, yes, we want it. And it can happen in your life and in my life, even as a Christ follower, where the crowd will pull or the crowd will compel you uh, to different behaviors and different attitudes. And this is something, uh, as, a, as a person who follows King Jesus, you really got to come to terms with. But the king is not calling us to be like everybody else. We are the called out ones, the ecclesia, the church. That's who we are. We are the chosen. We are the beloved. 
And because of it, uh, we, we come out of that realm. We're in the world, but not of it. And that still means we relate to people and we, we engage people all the time. But that's not who we are. And we have to be really mindful because when you see other things or other nations or other peoples and what they have, sometimes there's a gravitational pull that begins to happen with our sin nature. And it, God is telling Israel, look, come to terms with that. <laughs> Uh, like we teach our kids when they're little, be careful little eyes what you see. Be careful little eyes what you see. You think you want that, but you don't actually want that. Um, so, so the king is calling us to not be like everybody else. That's really, really key. So, so over the years, we, we see Israel following these kings. They asked for a king. They received kings, some good, some bad, until finally, until finally, Jesus the king was born. And when Jesus the King was born, the Messiah was born, which we're about to celebrate at Christmas time, amazing things happen. In fact, the entire skies begin to change. Stars literally began to line up. Astronomers are like, oh my goodness, what is happening? This is a phenomenon. We've never seen this before. We've been watching and watching and we see the stars, we study the stars, but oh my goodness, these stars are lining up in a way they never did. And when we look at this, we can look at Zechariah and Zechariah talks about Something is going to happen and these stars lining up are pointing to this and astronomers from very far away say, we know what this phenomenon in the, in the sky means. It's a sign. It's a sign that Israel's king, Israel's long-awaited king, one sent from God, ordained by God, is actually coming, the actual Messiah king. And they travel from far away to come see this Christ the king that we're about to celebrate in, in Christmas. And they bring gifts, gifts that are fit for a king. And this is where it really, really uh, begins. And then Jesus from here, um, Jesus came and he showed, he comes on the scene and he begins to show you his kingship. He does these things. He speaks with the authority of the father and he heals and he calms the, the waves and the wind and he heals the sick. And they're like, oh my goodness, this is kingship beyond anything we've ever seen. He has this authority that even the demons obey. He's got authority like no other king on the planet, and yet he's a humble king. And he comes in on Palm Sunday, not to conquer like most kings would. He comes in on a donkey in total humility. And as he's coming in, people are waving branches saying, Hosanna to the king of David, the, the king of Israel. Hosanna to the son of David, the, the king of Israel that was finally going to come, that we're waiting on, the one sent by God, ordained by God, is finally coming, and they're waving all these palm branches and going, this is awesome. It's so overwhelming. The religious leaders are having a really hard time, and we're going to see they do in today's passage as well, with Jesus being the king. They have a fundamental problem with Jesus as king. And as the people are shouting out, King Jesus, yes, King Jesus, we're celebrating you, the Pharisees are telling Jesus, Tell those people to be quiet. And Jesus said, listen, if the people are quiet, the stones are going to cry out. This is a day in history. People have been waiting for the king. And Jesus comes into Jerusalem just as the prophecies in Daniel prophesied that he would. King Jesus enters a city, monumental, epic moment, profound. And then we, a few days later, a few days later, this is where we pick up, Judas betrays King Jesus. He betrays the king with a kiss. And it's a sad story. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago. And King Jesus, because of Judas, was arrested and he was beaten and he gets brought before the religious leaders. 
And they say, is it true you are the son of God? And he's like, yep, it is just as you say. And then they, they beat him. And they don't have the authority really to kill him, so they bring him over to the Roman governor. And this is where the passage begins uh, today with a little bit of tension with Judas and the religious leaders. So if we can follow along together, we're going to look at this in sections. Uh, Matthew 27, uh, verses 1 through 25 today. We're going to look at the first section. It says this in Matthew 27. Um, Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate the governor. And when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and to the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Jesus threw the money into the temple and left, and then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests picked up the coins and said, it is against the law to put this money into the treasury since it's blood money. So they decided to use uh, the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. Uh, that is why it has been called field of blood to this day. That, then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used it to buy the potter's field as the Lord uh, commanded. So Jesus, King Jesus, is completely innocent. And yet Judas betrayed him for, what did he betray him for? 30 pieces of silver. I mean, have you really stopped to think about this? I, of course we've read it. Of course we know the story. But have you really stopped to think about this? Because here's what's alarming to me. Judas is walking with King Jesus for three years. Judas hears the words. Judas sees the power. Judas is getting in on the inner circle stuff. He sees the kingdom of God. Judas, for all intents and purposes, seems to absolutely be a disciple and a follower of God. But listen, at the same time he's following Jesus. He's been following for three years. He's one of the 12. At the same time, he's got this thing going on. And it's a thing that he never, he never tamed it. He never tamed it. He had this desire, this inner thing pulling at him. Remember we talked about following God and following the world? He's got this thing. And although he's following Jesus, he's got this tug. And he never really comes to terms with it. He never fully deals with it. And it has to do with his love for money. Judas loves money. The passage we saw recently, Jesus was at a home and Mary Magdalene got up and poured this expensive perfume all over Jesus. And it says in one of the Gospels that Judas was the first one who started this thing. He was furious. Why wasn't that money put in this little treasury box that I'm carrying, he's saying. Instead of poured out like that, that's a waste. Judas started this thing. Judas is the one who didn't recognize worship or appreciate the value of worship, but instead had this thing for money. And it's amazing because people do many things for the love of money. People in life. Christians, maybe sometimes, can do many things for the love of money. And this is what he's doing now. And it's astonishing to me because we can't miss the fact, like whatever, Judas did that and move on without saying, how does somebody who says they believe in God and is walking with God turn around and do this? Why does he got this ongoing money thing? It's got a grip on him and he never really deals with it. He doesn't deal with it because it's manifest 
at the end of his life right here where this money has a, a grip on him. Again, people do many things for the love of money. Jesus says a lot about the heart condition and the love of money. Uh, but the second point this morning, and I think it's an important one for us to come to terms, if Jesus is your king, if you're a follower of the Lord, to, to, to know this profound thing about, about money is money often reveals our allegiance. Money often reveals our allegiance. Um, it simply does. And Jesus said that it would. Jesus said that money would reveal our allegiance. Jesus said things like, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Whatever is valuable in your life, your heart's going to be connected to your value. And so if you, if you value uh, race cars and you're putting all your money in race cars, well, that's where your allegiance is. I believe in God, but my allegiance is in race cars. Does that make sense? Um, if, you design, if, you, if you put all your money in like designer purses and like, that's, like you're getting every new purse that comes out, then I love God, but my allegiance, does this make sense? My allegiance is in designer clothes. Does this make sense? Because where our treasure is, our heart. Jesus said this. And Jesus said things like, listen, it, it's got such a pull on people's life. Uh, so many people, obviously even people walking with Jesus. Um, it's got such a pull. Uh, Jesus said to the, to the disciples, listen, you simply cannot serve two masters. And he was referring to God and mammon, which is the pull or the, the, the pull of money. That's what he's talking about. He's like, you sim- money is a tool. It is a resource. It can be a blessing and it is good to make and use for the glory of God or do things and get stability in life. It's got a wonderful resource, but ultimately we can't love it, we can't bow to it, we can't serve it, and yet many people do. Uh, so, so people like Judas, yes, Jesus, I'm following you, I'm one of the crew, but the money thing is pulling at him, and Jesus is like, you can't actually serve two masters because you're going to end up picking one and rejecting the other. And at the end of Judas's life, guess what he picks? He picks the money over the king. To Judas, cash is king. You see that? It simply was. And I think it was all along, and he never came to terms with it. Had a pull on his life. Um, And we have to choose between which master we're going to serve in life. And many people, this is their challenge. Many people, uh, and that's why Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Why? Because money has such a pull on people. They'd say, no, it doesn't. But there's no way they're going to attribute their allegiance to King Jesus when honestly it really is money. And, and the only way that reveals it is, where is your allegiance? Where is your allegiance? What does your allegiance actually uh, look like? And, and that's something that I think we have to ask ourselves honestly. Uh, Judas failed the allegiance test. He failed it uh, because money reveals our allegiance, both what we do for it and what we do with it. Would you say that with me? What we do for it and what we do with it. That's the allegiance test. Everything is from God. And so when we look at that, uh, God, you're my king, but no, no allegiance there uh, in that department. Uh, I, I got, you know, so this is something we have to come to terms with. Where is money to us? What we do for it and what we do with it. Will we compromise to get it? Will we say, no way, I won't compromise to get it? What will we do? He compromised what he did for money, first of all, that's failing the allegiance test. And he also failed, you know, what he did for, you know, for it and what he was doing with it. So when it comes to money, how are you doing in the allegiance test? That's a private question for you. We're not have to do a raise of hands, show of hands. How's everybody doing on the allegiance test? Um, but think about that. How are you doing on this allegiance test? I think it's such an important 
issue that uh, Christy and I have been doing this for 25, 30 years, and uh, it's something that we teach our children. If our children work hard and they get an allowance, an allowance, we teach our children this principle of God's kingdom. How are you doing with your allegiance in this area? Because the love of money can manifest at a very young age. It's mine. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, okay, come to terms. We don't make anybody do anything because we would be putting them under the law if we did that. But we encourage their heart to understand uh, God's economy and their allegiance to God and his kingdom. Uh, but I would say before we finish this, since Judas is a glaring example of money and the love of it and the misappropriation of it and what he did for it and what he would be willing to do for it. It's a glaring story. I, I think it's important to say that he, he failed the allegiance test and we don't, we don't want to. And, and I would just encourage you guys uh, to put the king, we're talking about Jesus as king. And that means if he's the king, you've entered his kingdom. And we're citizens of his kingdom as sons and daughters and he's the king. And if that's the case, I would encourage you to share your allegiance with him and put God first in every area of life, including finances. I would say that. Abraham did that before there ever was a law, before the law. Moses did it under the law and said, listen, God will bless you. This isn't about being righteous with God. That's all through Jesus entirely. Okay, we don't buy our way to heaven. We don't earn it. It's our righteousness is imparted to us through Christ the King. But there are blessings that God promises for faithfulness and obedience in this area. The Bible's clear. And the New Testament church, 1 Corinthians 16.2, uh, says every Sunday each of you must put aside, a, uh, put aside some money in proportion to what you have earned. And the New, that's the Corinthians church saying, be proportionate. And it was about the kingdom. As citizens of the kingdom, honor the king and uh, support the work of the kingdom. I want to bring that up because Judas couldn't, he couldn't get his head around this. Three years with Jesus, and he, he couldn't get his head or his heart around this, this money thing, this allegiance thing, and it didn't work out well. So I would just encourage you guys to really come to terms uh, with, this, with this area. Um, so the religious leaders here have rejected Jesus as their king. They've completely rejected him. There's people acknowledging him as his king, but the leaders at large have rejected him as their king. They paid money to have King Jesus captured, they paid money to Judas, and now they're sending Jesus to Pilate, the governor. And uh, they're not going to say he said he's the son of God because Pilate doesn't care about that. They're going to say he calls himself the king of the Jews, something that might get Pilate's interest because Pilate is the government and the king of all the Roman Empire is Caesar. And that poses a, a challenge that there's other kings around, or it might pose a challenge. So this is the, the charge that they've trumped up to try to get uh, Jesus um, uh, crucified. And it moves on in verse 11, and some of these verses are pretty powerful. It says, Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Here is a glaring reality that Jesus is king. He even says he is king. He's the king of the Jews. And not only is the king of the Jews, he's the king of all kings, but again, this is something where the governor would say, wait, you're the king of the Jews because Caesar's the king of the whole empire and we didn't know Israel had a king and is this really a threat to the empire? He meets Jesus, he assesses Jesus, he begins to look at the nature of Jesus. One of the gospels says, yeah, but my kingdom, it's not of this world. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of kings. He's the king of 
the universe. He's the king of eternity. He's the king of all these dimensions. It's not just the king of Israel. He didn't come to conquer. He came in peace. He came as a lamb, but he's coming back like a lion. Amen. There's his dimensions to King Jesus that we begin to see unfold in scripture, and it gets powerful and, 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 and beautiful. And so uh, Jesus, Pilate's looking at him going, yeah, I don't really see anything wrong with this guy, but you know, he's not threatening our empire. And he says he's the king of the Jews. And so it moves on from right there in verse 12. Uh, and it says, when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. See, Jesus was not trying to explain away his way out of the cross. He wasn't trying to explain. He wasn't trying to litigate his way from the cross. He was born with a mission, and the mission was the cross. And this is the time where he's about to step into this ultimate sacrifice because of his love for you and I. So he's about to step. So he's not going to explain it away. He's not going to argue it away. And he remains silent on the charges. But even through this, Pilate, the governor, is like, he's seen enough cases. He's heard enough things. He can tell this is a religious leader issue with you. And he's not really having a problem with Jesus. And we're going to see that unfold, that he himself sees the innocence of Jesus. That's important to note because Jesus was absolutely... Um, Innocent. It moves on to verse 15 and says, Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one, of, uh, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew that it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him, uh, the governor asked the crowd, here's the thing, the governor asked the crowd something. The governor is a leader. Uh, the governor could have, could have made his own choices, and he's turning this, this, this question to the crowd. And, and, and that could be good or bad. You've got to really beware sometimes of the crowd. There's, have you ever heard of mob rule mentality? Have you heard of that kind of thing? Yeah, this is what can happen. It's not just like, well, the crowd says go back to Egypt. The spices are better. Okay, no, wait a second. God said this. We're not going back to Egypt. That's the land of bondage. Did you, did you forget? And the crowd forgets that Egypt is the land of bondage. But they're, they're stinking spices. Let's go back for the flavor. <laughs> and God's like, no, don't go back for the flavor. I got a land of milk and honey, and it's that way. But the mob wants to go this way. And so there's always this tension. And right now in this passage right here, uh, there has to be a choice made. And the crowd is about to make this choice. And the crowd is not always good. I'm not talking about the church. I'm talking about the crowd. Does that make sense? The crowd is not always good at making this choice. They have to make a choice between the purity of Jesus and the popularity of a prisoner. And when it comes to purity and popularity, the crowd is not very good at discerning this kind of stuff. In fact, the crowd is typically very bad at discerning stuff. The crowd always seems to choose popularity over truth and purity. Do you know that? The crowd always seems to choose popularity over truth and, and purity. And that's the choice they have before them. Jesus is the truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He is truth. He didn't sin. He's innocent. He is pure. And yet the crowd has an opportunity to go with the popular one who was an insurrectionist who tried to overthrow the government, 
government and the religious leaders stirred him up to point to the popular guy. They have this choice to make. Again, we've been called out of the crowd. We're not part of the crowd, but this is important. We live in a world where the second most populated city in the world, you turn on the news, you get media, you hear the crowd, you hear the voices, you hear all kinds of things in your news feeds, what's ever coming. You're going to hear the crowd. You're going to keep hearing the crowd. Can I tell you something, church? We're living in times where the crowd's going to get louder. You hearing me this morning? The crowd's going to get louder. And what you do with the voice of the crowd matters monumentally in your walk with Jesus Christ. What you do with the voice of the crowd. The crowd will go the way of popularity. We've been called out of the crowd. And, and you can't go, well, the crowd's saying this. Listen, we've got to walk in the ways of truth. We've got to walk in the ways of the king. Jesus is king. We are sons and daughters and citizens of his kingdom. We're not in the kingdom of the world. We're in it, but we're not of it. We're in the, we're, we're, we're in the kingdom of God, and the crowd doesn't always get that, and the crowd has its own narrative, and, and if you and I are listening too loud or putting too much weight on the influence of the crowd, I'm telling you the same thing will happen to us that's happened to Israel repetitively. We need to know our identity. We need to know who we are. We need to know whose we are. We need to know what truth is. We've got to know what the kingdom of God is all about, because that's the realm that we live in. Um, and so, you know, if you're a note taker today, here's the third point this morning, um, is always choose the king over the crowd and purity over popularity. Always choose the king, King Jesus, over the crowd. Always. You'll never go wrong. But the crowd's not saying King Jesus. The crowd's saying a different thing. So choose the king over the crowd and choose purity over popularity that the popular choice is always one of compromise or oftentimes is. And you've got to walk in the holistic ways of God. What are you calling me? How are you calling me to live? You're calling me to be set apart. You're calling me to be different. I was in the world, but I'm not. You took me out of Egypt and now you want to get the Egypt out of me. You took me out of Babylon and now you want to get the Babylon out of me. You took me out of Hollywood, and now you want to get the Hollywood. Does this make sense? This is what God is calling you to. And this is the process of, of, of popularity or purity, and this is a struggle that believers have. Christians have this struggle of, of when it comes to popularity. What are we willing to do? Will we, will we, will we weigh in and, and want to please the crowd, or will we want to please the king? And and this is an ongoing struggle. I think in the 21st century church in America, uh, the church in general has gotten very narcissistic compared to the historic church. And this is a struggle that we have right in front of us with all kinds of ideas and options and pulls. We really got to know our identity now more than ever. And then it goes on in verse 19 and says this. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him a message don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. This is pretty profound because she is having a prophetic dream. Why is this a prophetic dream? Anybody who has a dream that points to the nature and the character of Jesus, the true nature and character of Jesus, is prophetic. It's God revealing who Jesus really is. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit points us to Jesus and who he is and his ways and his words and always reminds us in the things that Jesus did and, and said. This dream she's having is Jesus, who he is in his nature, he's innocent. Don't, he did nothing wrong. Do not condemn him. And she's suffering for it because she's realizing, oh no, my husband is hearing the case today and my husband may take the life of not just any innocent man, 
this innocent man who God just spoke to her in some kind of dream that has her very alarmed, she's very shaken. Uh, how many of you know that the, uh, in the Islamic community there are many people that are having a dream today, in these days, of a man in white coming to visit them? Did you know this? Many Muslim testimonies around the world are, are, are starting, starting, not because someone came up to them and shared the gospel, some are, but, but because they're having a dream, much like what happened to, Pil to Pilate's wife where all of a sudden you're sleeping and God waking you up through a dream or showing you something about this man. It doesn't say he appeared as the man in white, although in Scripture he does in Revelation that he's got this glowing robe and you see his glory. We see this image of Jesus in Scripture that way. However, people who have never read that Scripture are having these dreams, revelation of Jesus and who he is and his nature to follow him. And people have said to each other so discreetly because they don't want to get in trouble, have you seen the man in white? Yes, I have. And people are like, really? Jesus revealing himself through dreams, just like he did 2,000 years ago. So this is not a foreign idea or concept. God's been moving in, in dreams in people's lives for a long time. In this case, she is riveted. She is shocked about the nature and character of Jesus. So she gets up out of bed and she goes running down. This is an early morning trial. They had the, the Pharisees tried Jesus at night and they're marching him over at the crack of dawn. So the first order of business for the governor is hearing this case and she gets down there, runs up there, get, tells these guys, take this message and give it to him right now. He's in the middle of hearing the case. The case is going on. If you can picture a, a judge in a courtroom, the case is in process. And in the middle, there's this little sidebar, excuse me, what is it? Uh, this is from your wife. Please don't do anything with that man. He is absolutely innocent. I had a shocking dream last night. Don't touch him. And Pilate's like, I'm not feeling anything wrong with the guy either. And now my wife is bringing me this dream revelation, have nothing to do with him. So Pilate's like, wow. I can tell when you read this passage, Pilate's like, why did I get the crowd involved in this thing? Because he's having these reservations. You can tell he is. There's a building thing and you're going to see it revealed even more. You're going to see the reservations that Pilate has about going down this, this avenue with the crowd, giving the crowd the authority to make a decision. There is an internal struggle. Uh, the man is innocent. Leave him alone, his wife said. It moves on in verse 20. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do with Jesus who was called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. And then he released Bar Bar Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Um, Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. It doesn't sound like Pilate wanted to crucify him. There's an, there's an interesting insight in this passage to, to his quandary. Why? Why crucify him? There's nothing wrong. What did he do? He, Pilate is jumping into defense lawyer mode. Do you see this? On behalf of Jesus. It's interesting if you really look at it. He didn't do anything wrong. 
And although he seems to have this internal belief that instead of just judging the case, he actually becomes a bit of a defense lawyer going, why, guys, why are you doing this? He didn't do anything wrong. What did he do wrong? What's his crime? Why crucify him? That's what a defense lawyer would do. And Pilate apparently has some ounce of conviction in him that this is wrong on top of what his wife told him. So he's got this reservation going on. And he didn't want to crucify him. And verse 24 even reveals that this is kind of the mindset of Pilate because it says Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere. What do you mean he was getting nowhere? I, I tried to switch the narrative. I tried to reveal the innocence. I tried to get, persuade the crowd not to do this. But I'm getting nowhere. And in contrast, the crowd kept getting louder. So Pilate is between this quandary, and this is important for you, it's important for me, it's important for everyone who follows King Jesus. You have convictions, and a lot of the convictions are God-given convictions, that if you read his word and his spirit is in you, God is going to turn up the magnifying glass, he's going to turn up the temperature on certain God-given convictions that you have and that I have. And God put them in there. They're hardwired into your heart. He has these, these non-negotiable things that you're like, wait a second, that's just wrong. Or that's just right. And you just know it is. And these are hardwired convictions in the heart. And, and I believe everybody, the Bible in Romans talks about God wrote certain laws in nature that everyone's without excuse. There's certain, there's certain hardwire general revelation seen through nature that even if you never heard of the word of God in your life, there's certain revelation that's simply apparent to all, it says. To everyone on the planet, whether you're on the back of a mountain somewhere in Mount Fiji, or you're out, just nature alone has certain general revelation, enough for everyone to determine that's simply right or that's simply wrong. Everyone is without excuse, the Bible says, for that. And then the Word of God gives us greater revelation and understanding to know the detail and the nature of what God's calling us to and what he's calling us out of. But the general revelation is there for all. Pilate knows this guy's innocent. And Pilate has a conviction that he's innocent. And that's why he goes from judge to defense lawyer and tries to say, guys, why? He didn't do anything wrong. And the crowd's loud. He's like, but what crime, guys? And they're still getting louder. He's like, you shouldn't do this. You sure? You? No, we want the other guy. And he realized, look, I'm just getting nowhere with this crowd. So understand the quandary going on right here. And it's, it's, a, it's a challenge. It's a challenge that we have that, that he has a conviction, but the crowd is shouting louder. He has a conviction. He wants to follow his conviction, but the crowd is shouting louder. And in your life and in mine, will you follow your God-given convictions or will you follow the voice and the volume of the crowd? The voice and the volume of the crowd. Because the voice of the crowd can get louder and louder and louder and seem relentless. And you feel like sometimes, well, I guess everybody else is doing it. And you step into it. God didn't call you again to be like everyone. He called you to be a called out one. Amen? You're one of the called out ones. You're one of the chosen. You're the children of God. You're the elect. And you may have these convictions like Pilate did, but the crowd is shouting a whole different narrative and it says, but the crowd kept shouting louder as he kept sharing a conviction. The crowd got louder. He's like, but this. And they yelled out, but what crime? And they're louder. He's like, I'm getting nowhere. And the crowd's getting louder. He's like, forget it. And so instead of following his convictions, he followed the voice of the crowd. He too failed an allegiance test. He failed an allegiance test. 
He knew God gave him these convictions. He's going to have to stand before God and say, what, you know, what did you do with your convictions? I threw them out and followed the crowd. <laughs> Wrong answer. He gives us these convictions that we would walk in these certain non-negotiables that he puts in our, in our hearts. So the fourth point this morning is this, if you're a note taker. Always choose convictions. Always choose convictions over the volume of the opposition. The opposing voice, it's different from your conviction. It's the opposite of your conviction. The opposing voice might get louder and get louder and get louder and get louder. No matter where you hear it from, for your friends, it might be on the work, it could be anywhere, it could be in popular, it could be in, in music. Some of the lyrics, it's just the, the voice of the crowd, the voice of uh, the general, it could get louder and louder and louder, but you're called out one. You're not supposed to jump in and go down the river with everybody. You're supposed to love everyone and point them to a life point people to truth, but not go down the river. So when you have these convictions, God gave them to you. It's really important uh, that the volume of the opposition does not affect you. The volume of the opposition doesn't steer you, unlike Pilate, who surrendered his convictions because of the shouts of the crowd. We cannot surrender our convictions for the shouts of the crowd. And the Bible, again, says we're living in times where people will call good evil and evil good. Do you realize that? The Bible says... In the latter days, people will call good evil and evil good. Now, when I look at 2,000 years of Western civilization, I don't see 2,000 years of calling good evil and evil good. I don't. I see 2,000 years of people calling evil evil and good good. And if people were going to do evil, they did it at night or tried to get away with it. And if they got caught doing evil, they were like, oops, I'm busted, and everybody knew it. But now, now we call good evil and we call evil good. And we probably have your own list of what that is in popular times, but this is a common issue right now of calling good evil and evil good. The Bible says we're living in those kind of times, I believe, where we're seeing it around us, pointing to a time where it's more important than ever that you and I walk in convictions instead of the voice of the crowd. Because if the crowd and the populace, if the populace, if you become more outnumbered by those who are calling good and good evil, it's going to be a, a, a real pull for you to go, well, the crowd is doing this. And God's like, yeah, but you're not the crowd. You're my son and daughter. You're a called out one. Yeah, but everybody else is. How many of you know wrong is wrong even if everybody is doing it? And right is right even if nobody's doing it. Wrong is wrong even if everyone's doing it. And right is right even if nobody's doing it. And this is really important, guys. And so uh, in, in a minute, I just want to play a video. The worship team can come up if you guys want. I'm going to play a video that really elaborates on, on Jesus being the king. It's a creative piece that was put together on the kingship of Jesus. Um, but if Jesus is your king, here's the challenge to you. Many of you here are here today and you'd say, of course he's my king. That's why I come to church on Sunday because God is my king. Jesus is my king. I respect him as king. I believe he's the king of kings. And that's amazing. And I just want to encourage you with this action point this morning. If he's your king, what does your allegiance look like? In other words, if, if you had a king, uh, say in the time of Israel and David was a king, there was an allegiance. King says, go to war. We go to war. King says, prepare weapons. Okay, we prepare weapons. The king says, we're going to do this. We're going to plant. We're going to harvest. We're going to move. Sure, we do that. People follow. There's an allegiance to the king. And, and what does your allegiance to King uh, Jesus look like? Because our allegiance, in our allegiance, he's calling us to, to share with others the love of our king. Our king is so loving. He loved the whole world. He sent his only son. We've got to share the love of our king. We've got to share, share the ways of our king, right? Share the ways of our king. We've got to share the truth of our king. 
He's the way, the truth, and the life. He, he is absolute truth. He's the door. He's the pathway. He's the, the living water. He's, all, he's the king. He's the giver of life. He's the author and perfecter of everything we know. He's the one we will spend eternity with. He's his dimensions of the king and his, his kingdom. If he's our king, our allegiance would say that we speak the words of the kingdom to others. We speak most of Jesus' teaching. If you look at his teaching, the majority of it was on the kingdom of God. Because if you have a king, you've entered the kingdom. And this is what the world looks like. This is what your economy and your realm looks like now. Outside the kingdom looks different. But if you have a king, you jump into, even though you're walking on earth and living on earth and doing everything else, paying taxes on earth and working on earth and voting on earth and doing everything in this realm, in the spiritual realm, you've entered the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, that's why Jesus taught so much about the kingdom. But if so, we, we speak the words of the kingdom. And if our allegiance is there, we, we support the work of the kingdom. We support the work of the kingdom, and actually we do the work of the kingdom. If our allegiance is with the king, we do the work. We wouldn't go, you're our king, but handle it. I'll just sit here and watch it. It's like, you're the king. I'm allegiant. What, what can I do, Lord? And he might say, well, what do you have in your hand? Well, all I have is, well, start there. Share your allegiance with me by doing with what's in your hand. We have to be willing to share the love of the king and the power of the king, and the magnitude of the king. But I'm actually really excited. There's a whole generation. I was hearing a, a, a radio, there was a hip-hop station on, and, and the DJ said, what do you think of this new album that came out, Jesus is King, by Kanye West? Uh, we, and he said to the other guy, he goes, you kind of have some kind of faith. What do you think about it? And the guy goes, I think it's amazing. He goes, because there's an entire generation of young kids who, unlike people from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, who never heard even the name of Jesus. And for Kanye to come out and say, Jesus is king, there's a whole generation of millions and millions of kids going, he's what? He's the king? What does that mean, he's the king? And they're leaning in on this Jesus is king. It means Lord, but he didn't use the Lord because that sounds religious, and we don't use it in our, in our realm. Like, who do we call Lord? We don't say, good morning, Lord. How are you? We don't use the word. But king, we know what that means. And Jesus is the king of the kingdom. He's the king of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ. And, and, and when you say Jesus is king, people go, what does that mean? And you go to Google and you go, Jesus is K and king populates. In fact, we did the other day, Jesus, we didn't even get to the is, and it did Jesus is king populating in a Google search. So, so Kanye launched a generation into the conversation or the inquiry to, to be inquisitive. What is this about that Jesus is king? But so much hinges on the kingship of Jesus. He's a king on every level, guys. He's not just the king of the Jews and the king of Israel. He's the king of all kings, but he's a king on so many levels. And as the worship team comes up, we're just going to play a video. Um, it's a little creative piece on just how awesome this king of kings is. This has been a presentation of Valley Metro Church. To hear more messages or to support future podcasts, please visit us at valleymetrochurch.com.